Please note that this is just the B version of the episode, which just features the full-length interview. If you wish to learn more about social ecology and the ecology of freedom, please refer to the A episode. Today I'm excited to have with me from the Institute for Social Ecology, Blair Taylor. Please give our listeners a short introduction of yourself, who you are, what you do, and what's your relationship to social ecology. Sure. So my name is Blair Taylor, and I'm the program director of the Institute for Social Ecology. Uh, I've been involved with the social ecology movement and with the Institute since uh, 2000. Um, I'm from the Pacific Northwest, a town called Bremerton outside Seattle, and I was very involved in various forms of activism, from anti-fascist activism to labor activism, environmental activism. And, you know, in the Northwest, we have a lot of uh, beautiful trees and a lot of very nice um, natural places. And so I was involved in things like forest defense. And I came across the book Defending the Earth, a debate between Murray Bookchin and Dave Foreman. Dave Foreman being one of the founders of the Direct Action Environmental Group, Earth First. And um, it was just, it was this uh, really important experience for me because he basically destroys Dave Foreman in this debate. It's basically essentially debating deep ecology versus social ecology. And I realized there was a very different way of understanding ecological problems. Um, so that was also um, during the time where the ultra globalization or global justice movement was taking place. Um, so it was, you know, the summer after the, the big battle in Seattle in 1999. So I went out to the Institute um, when we had a physical campus in Vermont, which we, we no longer do. Um, and I spent the summer there. Um, it was a program called Ecology and Community and just spent a month thinking and learning um, and spending time with really amazing activists and thinkers and revolutionaries from all over the world. And I've just been coming back ever since. It's been my political and intellectual home. And I joined the board about 10 years ago. And um, I started working as program director about, I guess, six years ago now. And the Institute, it's a popular education uh, center. We do online courses. We do in-person social ecology intensives in various places around usually the U.S., but also in Canada. We love to do that internationally as well. Um, we do speaker series. We do reading groups. We put out um, a journal. We do all things related to popular education, guided always towards the goal of creating a truly uh, free social ecological society. I'm also a teacher. I teach social studies at a local high school. Um, and I'm an activist and educator and writer. So as you mentioned, uh, you are quite uh, invested in social ecology and creating a social ecological world. And if you were confronted with the question, what would you say in your own words is social ecology at best in one, two or three sentences? Yeah, I would say it's both a political, theoretical, philosophical perspective towards the goal of creating a truly free and ecological society. And it has a very specific understanding of that. Essentially, I would say the base, the base understanding of social ecology is that the ecological crisis is a social crisis. You cannot treat it in isolation from the social problems of hierarchy, capitalism, racism, the state, um, all these other things that, you know, pull human society apart um, are part and parcel of the environmental problem. Um, I would maybe leave it there just for a short and sweet uh, answer. And we can also elaborate that of course, on that, of course. It might sound redundant, but you mentioned already uh, the social crisis being the ecological crisis and vice versa. But still, 
why would you say is social ecology still relevant today? Sure. So I think, you know, when we think back to like the, the beginnings of the modern environmental movement in the 60s and 70s, you know, the, the dominant perspective was kind of a technocratic approach that really looked at technology and the, therefore technological fixes on the one hand, and also really strongly focused on population as if environmental problems were just a problem of the quantitative issues of increasing human population. And we've seen, especially since then, I mean, even at the time, Marie Bookchin, was a, the, who is the, the main thinker of social ecology and the founder of the Institute for Social Ecology, he was criticizing the, the, the very problematic assumptions built into this understanding of environmental problems, especially around population, that if you see population as the main problem, you're essentially blaming um, the non-white majority instead of looking at the, the Western wealthy countries, which in fact are disproportionately the ones putting carbon into the atmosphere and they're using the earth's resources at a much higher rate. So he was saying the problem is not quantitative, it is qualitative. It is very tied to how we organize our societies um, along especially capitalist lines, along status lines and internally um, hierarchical lines. Um, so until we until we have a society that is liberated, that is not capitalist, where we govern ourselves, we can expect to continue to confront these ecological problems, which is why even though we've had this on our radars, at least for the last 50 years, environmental um, problems we face are only getting more severe, despite growing awareness of it, because we refuse to address the root causes of those problems, capitalism in particular, the grow or die logic of capitalism that posits that we can have uh, unlimited economic growth on a planet of finite resources. Okay, yeah, that totally makes sense. Uh, agree wholeheartedly. And uh, as you mentioned before, as you are, that you are quite active in the Institute, but still, how do you think does social ecology influence our everyday lives and your personal everyday life, both from an academic perspective as well as from a personal perspective? Right. You asked, why is it relevant? Well, it's relevant, um, just to reiterate, because we still face these problems. And in, in our view, the kind of like market-based solutions that have been on offer for climate, the um, state-centric top-down, you know, tinkering at the edges of um, the capitalist economy, uh, solutions are not solutions at all, and they, they cannot get at this basic, uh, you know, fundamental issue. So it influences our everyday lives because these problems influence our lives. And I think people increasingly have see these problems. Like, it's not like it was, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, where you really had to stress that ecological problems were real and you were just kind of dismissed. No, now people can see it. And here in the Pacific Northwest, you know, we have a new fire season every summer that we didn't used to have. Um, where now we have one to three weeks where you aren't really supposed to go outdoors because we have wildfires, because it's just become drier and warmer. Um, so it influences our lives because we need these analyses and solutions and political perspectives uh, to think and act our way out of this problem. And then, you know, when, when you say influence on a day-to-day -day life, you know, we've, we've been very critical of the kind of lifestyle orientation of many environmental movements that end up just wagging their finger at people saying, you know, do this, don't do that, you know, you should consume less, this and that. That's all well and good. Of course, we want to live a more ethical and environmental um, lifestyle, but unfortunately, the problem is not individual. It is structural and social. Um, the Guardian report from a few years ago noted that something like 99%, wait, 
I'm probably going to mess up the statistic now, but I think it's 99% of climate emissions come from like 71 corporations and or states. So this is the same problem with like blaming humanity in general for environmental problems. In reality, it's specific ways of organizing our society and it's specific actors and in this case, specific corporations. So when you say our daily lives, it's not, unfortunately, it's not so simple as just, you know, use this product or don't use that product. Um, we really need to reorganize our society. So what we need are vibrant movements that are creating um, localized democracy that are thinking about transitioning away from the carbon economy and that are thinking about ways to organize our material existence, our material lives um, in a way that is not based on the endless uh, you know, creation of profit, but rather on meeting human need. So on an everyday level, it's about building movements. It's about changing consciousness. You mentioned um, academically or educationally, social ecology has always kind of straddled two worlds, the, the, the world of social movements and the world of ideas. Um, although within mainstream academia, we are not um, you know, considered any kind of a dominant force because we are too political. We, we don't have any pretension to be neutral observers. You, like Howard Zinn said, you can't be neutral on a moving train and that train is right now heading towards ecological and social cliffs. Um, so we need an engaged form of inquiry that is also rooted in praxis. So I think this is really important, even though academia increasingly speaks the language of social movements, it really is um, another industry like any other with its own norms, its own hierarchies. So we really don't see academia as any kind of a solution to these problems. In many ways, it's always stood in the way of, both by kind of recuperating or co-opting some of the most promising thinkers and um, integrating them into you know, the capitalist economy and the, the mores and the, the vanity projects of academia where you spend all your time writing books that a handful of people um, read. So we aim towards a social movement engaged form of inquiry and thinking. And our questions, the questions we're most interested in are the ones that are always directed towards how can we build a better society? How can we create powerful movements? So that means learning from the history of social movements. It means thinking about um, the basic nature of nature and humanity's relationship to the non-human world. So there are deeply theoretical, philosophical, um, et cetera, et cetera, sociological questions that we engage with very seriously, but we engage with them um, in, in the spirit of a critical theory that, you know, as Marx said, to clarify the struggles and wishes of the age. Okay, but if you were to think about a, a field of academia that would profit the most off of integrating social ecology into its curriculum, despite you mentioning it being, in quotation marks, too political, which do you think would be the one to profit the most? Well, social ecology is a very interdisciplinary body of ideas. Um, so we don't fit neatly into disciplinary boxes because the problems we face in the world we live in don't respect those those boxes. But we could say, I mean, I, I did my own PhD in political science. I think political science could learn a lot from social ecology's critique of the state and its analysis of statecraft and critique of representation as fundamentally disempowering political forms. Um, We could, uh, the world of philosophy could learn from uh, social ecology's understanding of dialectical naturalism, which tries to um, build on a materialist politics that understands, you know, nature and society is also rooted in, you know, material realities, but not in a reductive way, but in a way that looks to the potentialities and the continuities between what we call first nature or non-human nature and second nature or 
human society. Um, we've had a lot of interesting discussions about what that looks like, about bringing out some of those potentialities, both in the natural and social worlds. So dialectical naturalism, I think, is a very interesting field of philosophical inquiry that really resonates with a lot of current evolutionary biology that's moving away from the very um, reductive uh, social Darwinist forms of, of quote unquote nature philosophy. Um, I think urban studies, you know, social ecology has a strong emphasis on cities as um, pretty relatively um, important novel places for the emergence of freedom and breaking down of um, folk ties and the creation of citizens and, and new forms of freedom that are, are embedded therein. So I think um, in integrating that into urban studies programs and urban studies um, research fields would be really worthwhile. And that's something that we've kind of um, not focused on so much just because we haven't had any architects or urban planners, but we're trying to build that out. We're hoping to offer a course on social ecology and urban planning, urban politics um, in the spring here. Uh, I mean, we could go down the line. Social ecology was really key in, in looking at the relation at how nature is gendered and looking at the relationship between the domination of women and the domination of nature. So um, gender studies, feminist studies, I think also we, you know, we offered the first classes ever on ecofeminism in the 1970s um, through the Institute for Social Ecology with people like Inestra King and Hyatt Heller. Um, utopian studies, the, the history of thinking about utopia and, and about better worlds, whether that's in literary studies or that's in philosophy. Um, you know, our other co-founder, Dan Urkoff, has written extensively about utopia and utopian studies as a field that's gotten a lot more attention as people are looking to, you know, what kind of alternate visions can guide us towards a different far less dystopian future than the one that seems to be staring us in the face. So we could really go down the list and I could probably find a way that social ecology relates to most academic fields, but those are a handful that I, I see it as being especially um, useful to. And I mean, of course, also environmental studies or environmental politics, which is probably the place you're most likely to come across social ecology, just because um, Murray Bookchin and social ecology has offered a very specific understanding of environmental problems that um, is often studied there. However, it's often put into a box, and again, it doesn't have this holistic perspective. Yeah, that uh, that does sound uh, very very reasonable, very good. I also thought it would fit into many fields of academia. So you mentioned already uh, the looming dystopia we uh, we face. So, what would you say? Which role do you think will social ecology play in the future as a framework that leads us into a sort of ecotopia? Or is a long forgotten concept in a dystopian nightmare world? Yeah, well, I certainly hope it, it becomes a framework that leads us towards a, a free and ecological society. And here I can offer a very hopeful real world example. And that is the example of the Rojava revolution in um, you know, the Middle East, where uh, the leader of the PKK, Abdullah Ojalan, started reading Murray Bookchin while he was imprisoned, and they were, once upon a time, a fairly traditional Marxist-Leninist national liberation movement that wanted to create a state for the Kurdish people who are, you know, spread between Iran, Iraq, Turkey, and Syria. And then, of course, <clears throat> the Syrian civil war and, like, U.S. Um, supporting 
um, the, the Kurdish rebels there against ISIS became this kind of like media thing. Well, a lot of people started to pick up on the fact that they were reading this obs relatively obscure Vermont um, radical leftist philosopher as kind of the guide, the guiding um, light of their new, no, new ideology, of course, drawing on other things and local conditions. But in any case, here in the Middle East, in the course of a civil war, we're seeing the beginnings of a directly democratic, anti-capitalist and feminist society, like something that would be incredibly hopeful anywhere, but especially in the Middle East, a place that in the popular imagination is, you know, war and desert and, and um, in some ways dystopian, especially in Syria in the wake of the Syrian civil war. So here's a place where they're trying to build a very much uh, utopian society in the real world. Um, Ursula K. Le Guin, the famous uh, science fiction and fantasy writer, was um, a friend of Murray Bookchin's. They had a correspondence, and she really found a lot of um, importance in his ideas of envisioning a different kind of world that she then took into the world of fiction and science fiction, that we need, we need new coordinates. We need a vision of thinking about how the world could look differently if we're going to jump into that world. Of course, there are also plenty of um, dystopian things all around us. I mean, that has become maybe the dominant um, theme for much of the culture industry today. So much cultural production is about dystopias because the problems seem to be getting worse. All the more reason why we need different ideas and different visions of what a truly free and ecological society might look for. And the Institute for Social Ecology since 1974 has been trying to articulate that vision and the kind of political praxis we need to create that world. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, while you are not mindlessly optimistic, you do you think that do you think that there is hope? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it always, you know, it always is dark before the dawn, I guess. And I don't, I'm not naively optimistic that, you know, we're on the, we're on the precipice of a so, social ecological revolution, not at all. But these problems are becoming more and more apparent and the breakdown of, of both the natural and social worlds becomes more and more apparent. And I think you, it becomes more and more clear that we can't solve these problems with the old solutions. And I think people are looking. So in the United States in the last few years, you've seen this tremendous new interest in socialism in things like the Green New Deal, which is hopeful in many ways, despite some of its kind of status top-down underpinnings. We want a, a people's Green New Deal that comes from the bottom up, um, that does not rely on states and elites and firms to do it for us, but that we will do it ourselves and uh, get together and build a very different kind of society. And I think a lot of people want that. And uh, we know that the, the natural world needs it if we're going to continue to sustain life on this planet. So what's the great Gramsci quote? Um, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. You know, we're hurtling towards that future one way, of, one way or the other. So uh, the best we can do is fight for that, find others that want to build that world. And I think it offers a much more um, compelling way to live in the here and now. It's not just like we're waiting for some um, utopian future to arrive. No, it's like our lives are better by trying to make it happen. And there's, there's something of the, the prefigurative impulse um, in there that we're prefiguring the kind of world we want to create as we build it. Okay, that was my final question. I thank you very much for being on the show. It was it was great talking to you. And uh, do you have any last words for the listeners? No, uh, just thank you for inviting me. And I, I welcome all your listeners to come check out the Institute for Social Ecology. Just Google us. We again, we offer courses. 
We do in-person um, summer schools here and there. We do a journal called Harbinger. Um, we publish books. We do all kinds of stuff. And it's a great way. We're a very global community, especially since the pandemic. And we've moved most of our things online. We have people from every continent on earth who are engaged in social movements and thinking through these problems. And it's really a unique space in that regard and that you can you know, meet with eco-feminists from South Africa or Zimbabwe. You can talk with um, indigenous activists from Brazil. You can meet people in Montreal who are doing libertarian municipalist organizing or right to the city organizing. So we really need to tie our movements together and to focus on some common goals and be at least having similar conversations. Uh, I think the Institute really is, offers a unique space where those conversations happen. So I invite you all to become part of it.